0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Uh, Today is Thursday, October 29th, and we've got a special episode for you. Earlier this month, Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner, along with Andy Cross and Tim Byers, spoke with Stitch Fix COO Mike Smith about the company's origins, its business model, and the company's culture of innovation and growth. For those not familiar with Stitch Fix, the company is working to revolutionize how people shop for clothing by providing its members with curated fixes using its proprietary technology to select pieces that match customers' style and size.
1: Mike, well, thanks so much for joining us here at The Motley Fool, where Stitch Fix is a recommendation to our members, uh, that we've, and we follow the business for, for many years. Um, and uh, I think we'd like to start with a little bit of your background, your history, um, what's your position at Stitch Fix, and um, how did you end up there?
2: Sure. So I'm Mike Smith. I'm our president and chief operating officer. I've been with the company about seven and a half years. Uh, I joined uh, from Walmart.com. I had been at Walmart's online division for nine years, uh, left that position uh, as chief operating officer and then joined Katrina when we were just four people. Uh, and it's been an amazing and intellectually challenging run for the seven and a half years that I've been here. Uh, I grew up in Virginia. I went to University of Virginia for undergrad, worked in consulting, and then went to business school. Uh, and then have been in retail pretty much since 2003. And it's been, obviously, an exciting time to be in retail.
3: Can you, can you talk about the early... You know, the first year or two of getting Stitch Fix off the ground, we've certainly read and uh, heard um, from, uh, from Katrina Lake about the capital raising challenges that she faced. And uh, what can you tell us about the early days and what, what, what is there in the DNA of the company um, that you that you experienced as employee number four?
2: Yeah, we talk a lot about Stitch Fix Grit and and sort of some of the thick skin we got back in the day when it was more challenging uh, to get investors excited about, uh, about this category. You know, a lot of investors, specifically in Silicon Valley, didn't love sort of an inventory business. Uh, there were very few public market comps of retail businesses that were doing well. Uh, and, I, you know, in the early days... Uh, building that thick skin and really a focus on uh, managing both growth and profitability so that we could have control of our own destiny drove the DNA and kind of formed the DNA of the company, which still z- exists today. And so, you know, at times we think of ourselves as underdogs. Uh, we certainly are really proud of the execution of the business uh, kind of company to date, which has been driven by this great balance between growth and profitability where we're able to self-fund all new investments and not be dependent on the capital markets. But that, you know, those early days, I'd say, helped form us culturally and also helped form how we think about executing the model.
3: And um, what was the, if you could walk us through the decision to go public and the and the IPO experience, that one's a little bit more of just a, Essence of the day question: Given all of the IPO turmoil of the last uh, couple weeks and months, what what was that experience like at Stitch Fix?
2: Yeah, it was really just another milestone in a very long journey. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the IPO experience being, you know, just a financing event. It was more than that. It was a special time for us, but it also, you know, was just and an, a time for us to celebrate for a hot second that you know we had achieved the greatness that we'd achieved, but really get back to work because we have so many opportunities on this platform to bring personalization to life in a lot of different ways. And so uh, it was an amazing experience. As we've talked about kind of in, in other conversations, it wasn't the easiest experience. Again, we experienced similar to the private markets. You know, a challenging public market environment for people being excited about our stock, but it, you know it, what it did for us was just another reminder that if you focus on executing uh, and you have a very long-term mentality to what you want to build uh, from a from a company standpoint, that you'll achieve those goals and and not worry about sort of the short-termism that sometimes exists with an IPO market.
3: What are the one or two things that you think? Investors in the public market right now are getting right about Stitch Fix, and what are the one or two things that you think are being misunderstood?
2: Yeah, I think the, uh, the one or two things that our long investors really get are kind of this focus on bringing uh, long-term value, thinking about it from a long-term value perspective, uh, that it requires investment in technology and data science in particular to deliver the value of a long period of time uh, that you know we can do and have done a lot of different things on this platform. Again, we launched with women's. Uh, we now have a men's business, we've launched a kid's business and a UK business, uh, and, and see, you know, when we think about the vision of the company, it's transforming the way people find what they love, and that has a very broad kind of purview out of all the things that we can do. And so I think our long-term investors understand that long-term view and all the ways that personalization, uh, can be applied to apparel, but also other things in the future. I think the misunderstanding is, you know, there are questions about real impact of data science in our business, and we can clearly see it. We have 125 data scientists. We have 200 engineers. Uh, We measure our return on investment on everything we do because of some of our, you know, foundational things that we experience in, in fundraising, and I think it's misunderstood exactly all the places that data science could have an impact in our business because it's not just in the styling algorithm, it's also in merchandising, it's in planning, it's in operations, it's in finance, it's in personalized marketing, and algorithms can really help you scale and be smarter about how to target clients and also just match inventory to clients uh, in ways that we've done company today, but still have a lot more opportunity to go even deeper there.
1: Mike, I really want to ask you uh, how many fixes you get a year, but I'm going to I'm going to refrain from that question just to um, you know keep the conversation focused on our business a little bit. Um, the uh, thinking through the culture that you've been able to, um, you and Katrina have been able to build and the type of um, people you've been able to hire. You mentioned 125 data scientists, I think 200 engineers. Um, Also, a lot of stylists that you work with. Um, Think about uh, helping us understand the culture and the balance between the type of people that are working at Stitch Fix and um, why you consider that such an asset to your success.
2: Yeah, to be clear, it is a massive asset to us, and it's uh, very differentiated in the marketplace. Uh, So, you know, we call it our operating system or our our OS, and we have specific things that we hire for and then our core values, and then we also teach leadership uh, around specific attributes that we expect all leaders to have. And so we hire for bright, kind, and motivated by challenge, And, you know, in the early days, it became very clear that bright was different than smart in our model. Bright, in my opinion, has uh, more risk-taking attributes to it. You have to be smart to be bright. But you also, bright is, you know, like a light, you know, is sharing. And you have to share kind of the thoughts that you have. Um, Kind was always something that, you know, Katrina and I felt that there are too many companies that were based on, like, you know, a lot of hierarchy that was unnecessary. Uh, and, it, you know, the best ideas really come from people that are closest to the business and not from kind of the ivory tower or, you know, sort of the C-suite. You know, the C-suite's important and Katrina is very important. And I'm very important to the business. But the reality is if you create a culture where ideas can come from anywhere, they actually do come from everywhere, which in this model specifically, when you're being as disruptive as we're being in changing the way apparel is bought, you want ideas. Ideas to uh, flow freely. And that's been a, a really important part of kind of how we've shown up. And then the last thing I touch on is exactly what you said in sort of the question is that uh, I love the diversity of the types of people and the functions you have at this company. You know, the difference between a data scientist and a stylist or an engineer and a merchant. Like, they're fundamentally different, but they start from this foundation of our operating system, and then they solve business problems together, kind of using both sides of their brain and really thinking about the problem very broadly, which is, you know, probably the most fun part of my job, is just walking around and and listening to these conversations that are happening as we're uh, changing the way retail has been done.
1: And, Mike, I'll just jump in with a quick follow-up there, uh, piggybacking on the balance of of working together across engineering and stylists and throughout the whole organization. When you look at something like, let's just take direct buy, a new initiative you've launched recently. Uh, talk a little bit about the excitement around that concept, how it kind of evolved, and where do you expect to take it over the next uh, few years?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, the direct buy, um, there's a lot of direct buy that we've talked about for a number of years at the company, which is this idea of how broad and how evolved can personalization be. And we see great, you know, large applications of how personalization uh, should work in our model. Um, But the specifics around direct buy, we had talked about wanting to digitize the style cards. So in, in a client's fix, you get, you know, the cards that will show you how to pair items with other items in your closet. And, it, you know, it became really clear that you should, at some point, make that digital and so that you can have people click on things and really understand how things pair together. And then that evolved into, well, imagine a world where you could have a client almost walk into their own personal shop, that they take something that they bought from us, and then they can see all the different places, you know, all the different ways to wear that and with what, and then buy those things um, from us. Uh, and so that's the evolution of shop your looks and direct buy. It's really just an, ev- you know, sort of an extension of personalization in ways that, you know, the fix just, you know, doesn't provide as much evolution there. And so uh, we're really excited about the potential for direct buy. It's very early. I mean, we we talked about it in our last earnings call that we had just um, given 20% of our women's client base the opportunity to test shop your looks. There's a lot of kind of optimization that we want to do with that product, but we thought it was important enough to talk to the investor community about it because of how much, uh, you know, how big we think it will be. Um, It is not a, you know, it is an evolution. It is not changing from what personalization is. It's a better form and a more granular form and a more hyper-curated form of personalization kind of using all the powers of personalization that we have in the model.
4: You know, Mike, uh, so can you talk a little bit about, it does seem that Stitch Fix has a culture of experimentation and something you said about how the market misunderstands the quality of data science you have. If anybody hasn't read it, I would recommend heartily they, they uh, read the multi-threaded blog that you guys keep on, on data yep. science, which is amazing. Um, it, it's really interesting and very fun, but in there you talk a lot, your data scientists talk a lot about experiments and experimentation And this in particular, you know, uh, shop your colors and shop your looks, sort of seems like it came out of that, the the direct buy uh, offering that you have now. Can you talk a little bit about how you run experiments at Stitch Fix and what you're working on now?
2: Yeah, we have a very robust kind of A-B test. Um, kind of uh, platform, but I think more importantly, going back to the operating system and culturally how we want people to show up, uh, we have a very um, openness to, you know, sort of fail fast and fail forward and to have people try new things. I mean, again, you're talking about a company that was started by Katrina in 2011 where she felt like Retail had not seen very much disruption at all and hadn't infused technology into the retail experience uh, like it should have. And so she had a very disruptive nature in terms of just starting the company. And, you know, the, the performance that we've had as a public company to date is really a result of us being willing to take risk and have a very long-term focus uh, to how we run the company. And so we ask our data science team, our engineering team to have the same kind of ethos, which is, you know, the, the, the biggest kind of um, hockey stick impact things that happen in our business are a result of people just coming up with the ideas and trying them and, and not being afraid to fail. And so the other kind of example of that that i talk about is just the evolution of Style Shuffle. So for those that aren't familiar with Style Shuffle, the way Style Shuffle works is it's a game that you can thumb up or thumb down certain styles that you like and other styles that you don't. And we have uh, over 80% of our active client base has played that game, and we have over 3 billion ratings that have come from Style Shuffle. And what that does is it allows us to understand both the client style that's playing the game, but any client that's like that client understand their style better. And as a result of that, we've seen our like-love scores, which is the ratings people give us around style, go up in the businesses that Style Shuffle is being applied to. But there's a lot more we can do with Style Shuffle. Like, you know, if you imagine a world where you take – merchandise before you're about to buy it and put it through Style Shuffle to make sure that it's merchandise that you should buy. You can see kind of a world where you start, you know, we do our own product development. So we have what we call exclusive brands, which is private label product. And you take some of those ideas you have around designs and put it through Style Shuffle and get an early read on whether you should design that product. So you know, there are a number of things like Style Shuffle, like Shop Your Looks that start as little kernels of ideas and then explode into these amazing platforms that allow us uh, to see really differentiated and impactful performance as a retailer.
4: One quick follow up on this. So uh, and the last time we checked in with you, I think in, in the not the last uh, quarterly letter, but maybe the quarter before you were around $2 billion Inputs on on style shuffle, which is uh, amazing.
2: Um, is that right? Yeah, I mean, too, so it's gone up. The first time we talked about it was a billion ratings, and just in a two quarters later, I believe it was up to three billion ratings. And so when you wow. talk okay. to data scientists, you know, it's it. There's never enough data to help them, you know, ha, sure. figure out how that data can, you know, be impactful and unlocking in this case. Uh, style and people really enjoy playing the game. And honestly, clients give us feedback about how they want to even evolve uh, style shuffle you know, there's there are clients that tell us, like, I'd like to tell you why I didn't like it. It's not that I didn't like that style, it's just that I have that. Or I like it, but I like it because of this color. And so some of the reasons why people either thumb up or thumb down can be evolved as well, as we think about what this product looks like over the next few years. Can you give yeah, an example? can
4: you talk about the, the feedback loop? Uh, because, so there, there's that. But then you also have these relationships with, uh, with retailers. You have mm-hmm. some premium retailers who, who are on your platform. And I've heard Katrina say that there's, there's something that you can give those retailers that a traditional retailer can't. Like You can give them the feedback. You can give them data on how their, their styles are performing on the Stitch Fix platform. How, how does that work and how have those relationships evolved? And then I'll let Tom ask his question.
3: That's good. That was very close to what my question was going to be. Nice job.
2: Yeah. I, one of the joys of my job has been sort of a little bit of being here seven and a half years is being able to answer this question with, you know, some history. So in the early days, you know, you would go to a brand and you would talk to them about selling in this channel. And you know, there were some brands that were, gave us a chance and you could buy 20 units from the brand, and other brands were like, I, I don't really understand what this kind of business is about. And if you fast forward to where we are today, you know, we're working with all the brands that we wanna work with, and there's this unbelievable evolution of sort of our brand relationship where people truly understand how differentiated it is and how much data they get to help them be a better brand. So examples of that are, you know, a a brand will get feedback from us on how their T-shirt or their pair of pants is is working with, you know, a small guy up to a triple triple extra large guy. And they'll also get feedback on how their shirt might be performing on a guy that's husky versus athletic. And in some cases, we've been able to show them data that it performs differently, not as effective, you know, with a triple XL guy because the way they've constructed the shirt didn't take into account the difference between an athletic cut guy and a husky guy. And I I can I have some sensitivity to this because I move back and forth between athletic and husky and sometimes shirts don't fit me as well when I'm in, you know, one shape or the other. And what I appreciate about Uh, Stitch Fix is this idea personalization is more than just finding me the right uh, t-shirt. It's finding me a great t-shirt that's going to fit me uh, and that I'm excited about wearing and that's going to drive confidence. And so that data, you know, is very helpful to a brand to develop better product. But what we also give that brand is you know, protection of the brand. We care deeply about, you know, how we care deeply about brands. So we don't mark down product. Uh, We, you know, we provide a full price retail channel for them. And we can also show a brand how their product might do for someone that, you know, for T-shirts, Uh, They might be, you know, have clients that feel like a $50 t-shirt is too much or a $50 t-shirt isn't enough, like they want to spend more. And it really allows them to be more granular in what product they sell us based on kind of the size and fit and price preferences of our, of our clients in ways, again, that other retailers don't have that data on their client set, uh, and we do, and, and they can develop product that's more tailored and more personalized for a, a very large group of clients.
3: Um, as I look at Stitch Fix, um, obvious comparison over to Netflix, and I know that you all have some linkages with Netflix, and you see Netflix's original programming becoming so crucial to their to their company, their business, and their platform for um, their audience, and looking at Stitch Fix's, um, your own brands, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering... Where you see the boundary lines for where you'll take your own brands, or if you don't see any boundary lines, where you see opportunities you will launch a new brand uh, how do you How do you think about the interplay between your own brands and the brands that you're bringing on your platform?
2: Yeah, I, you know we only see a world where both uh, both exist, where we have market brand product in our portfolio and we have exclusive brand product in our portfolio, or private label product. Uh, we develop private label product as a result of seeing gaps in the market. So there might be gaps from a price point perspective or a quality perspective or a style perspective, um, and then we'll develop exclusive brand product around those, those holes that we see where our clients are telling us they want product at this price point but can't find it in the market, nor can we, and we and develop product around that. So we don't have any you know, specific targets around how much of the business is going to be exclusive brand versus market brand. Uh, but we only see a world where market brands are, are very important. And what it does is it provides, you know, some healthy competition. Never, we would never take a brand and sort of make product that was similar to the brand. That's just not how we operate kind of as a company. But we will develop product that might be um, y- y- where, again, we go out to shop it in the market and we don't find it. And, and we done a really nice job of building exclusive brand business in women's men's and kids. each of those businesses might have different targets for how much exclusive brand uh, exclusive brand product will have, but that really is a result of how much, how much what we're seeing kind of in the market and what the needs are from um, from our client base
1: Mike, can you share a little insights into the expansion into new areas so for example um, you men- just mentioned kids. Uh, How do you think, what is the framework to thinking about going into a new client base or actually even into a new country and some of the challenges that you as a cultural uh, fit for uh, Stitch Fix, how do you balance between going after the new and making sure you continue to thrive in the old?
2: I shouldn't say old, but just more in the current. Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's kind of, I'd say, multi-layered. Hopefully, I'll hit on your point. The first is, before we do any new market or even new uh, business like men's, we do a lot of market research uh, to ensure that we have a right to be in that market. And so we'll do primary research and we'll... Uh, also listen to our clients to say, you know, what are the needs? You know, is there a really a real place for us to play in men's or in the UK or in kids? And so far, obviously all the businesses that we launched, we got positive, uh, you know, feedback that this is something that people would, how they'd want to shop. I'd say more broadly speaking, though, you know, if you look at what we're doing, what we're doing is changing the way people shop. Uh, And we're doing it in apparel first, and we're doing it with men's kids in the UK and a women's business, but there's no reason why, like, you know, for any nuanced decision-making or we're data science or building trust with a client that gets you more feedback that helps you, um, helps them find things that they love, why we can't apply this personalization to other business problems as well. And then the second part of your question is about sort of the trade-offs. I mean, you know, that's the fun part and the hard part of this job is if you're walking around the building here, and we really encourage you to come come hang out sometime, uh, you know, the men's business, you know, loves the resources they get, but would take more. Like, they take more data scientists to work on the challenge. The same for the kids' business. Uh, there's no shortage of ideas uh, that each of these businesses have to help grow their business and increase our total addressable market. And so the, the hard part is, you know, what, how much investment are we going to make? We've always had this balance between growth and profitability, and you'll have some investors that feel like we should just go negative and and spend into our very strong, you know, cash position on the balance sheet. And then many more investors really appreciate the balance between growth and profitability, but there's no shortage of ideas that we have where we, you know, want to make investments and and resource uh, kind of improving the experiences and and then growing into new markets and, and new possibilities as well.
1: Mike, can you also share some insights into – so inventory is a large part of your balance sheet uh, or Mm -hmm. meaningful amount of your balance sheet. Just think about how you think about inventory. Are there new ways to think about inventory? Um, How about technology that goes into that? Uh, Just uh, what does the inventory picture look like? How do you get better and better at that? Considering in the size of it relative to your balance sheet, and at, at, at yeah, days. I mean, we look at
2: you know our turns as one metric. I mean, we turn faster than any other apparel retailer in terms of six times a year at cost. Uh, we are we believe best in the world at matching product to what the client wants, and that has a lot to do with the again feedback that we've gotten and how much trust we've gotten with people filling out the stock profile that allows us. To develop product and then buy product and then match product to that client when they get a fix or now an in, indirect buy. Uh, that being said, we still have more room for opportunity to get even faster in our supply chain and using things like style shuffle that'll help us, you know, even do a, do even a better job of planning what the inventory is going to be in the future. But you know, we're very pleased with what we've seen, kind of you know, eight years or nine years into this business, what we can do with data science on inventory in particular. And while it's a big, you know, big part of the balance sheet, we we, we manage inventory probably better than any other retailer.
3: I, I do agree. It's, it's an awesome part of the business. A question that I have about that, this is just my crazy dreamer mind. Um, is there a way ultimately to have your suppliers carry the inventory until you distribute it?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and we talk about it a lot. I think the way I'd answer it is if there's ways to continue to deliver a great client experience and allow us to attribute the product in our proprietary way that helps with matching, we're somewhat agnostic to how the inventory is held. There's obviously working capital benefits by having the brand hold the inventory. But if it detracts from the client experience for whatever reason or you know doesn't allow us to sort of the algorithm to work as well as it needs to work to deliver a great client experience, then we won't do that. And then the last thing I'd say is there's plenty of retail models that have gone to brands and basically told them, you need to keep this on your balance sheet and you need to you know sort of do it in a consignment way that's not brand friendly. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I don't believe that's the way you know, you partner with brands mm-hmm. to get the best product and get unique product like we've done in our model. So we will always be balancing. If we did something different with a brand, making sure that it delivers a great client experience, that the algorithm is going to work as well as it did, and that we're a great partner to our brands and won't won't um, ever kind of break away from those three attributes.
4: Mike, you had a couple of in in the latest quarter. Um, you had a couple of metrics. I mean, speaking of the efficiency of your algorithms, you had a couple of new metrics in the in the quarterly letter. I, I want you to, to talk about these a little bit: the success rate and the uh, the payback period on on your marketing spend. It's kind of interesting here, and it does fit with you know your your sort of relentless uh desire to squeeze as much as you can out of every you know dollar of capital but how should we think about these two metrics and what do they signify to you
2: yeah i think the two disclosures in our last earnings i'll I'll touch on them individually the marketing disclosure really was to give people confidence and comfort that for every dollar we're spending, we're super intentional about making sure that we have fast payback on that dollar, and showing the showing the discipline of the company. There are a number of companies, I'd say specifically out here in Silicon Valley, that look at lifetime value and don't they like, might calculate it from a revenue perspective or not a full contribution margin, and will spend marketing dollars up exactly to that lifetime value. And we have not, nor will we ever do that. We want to make sure that every dollar has a very good return and fast paybacks on that on that investment, and that's what that disclosure shows. I'd say on the success rate, we've had questions before of like, do the algorithms really work? Does data science really work? And what we showed in that disclosure was that in cohorts, you know, 18. And you know, 18 and 19, that we did see improvement both from fix one to fix three, but also year over year. So again, the baseline was the hundred, but like, you know, what we saw was double digit improvement in, in fixed performance. And that's because of how much data we get um, from clients that allows us to get better over each fixes and then the network and scale effects of the size of our business like we'll get better at fix one every time when you're kind of operating with three point two million active clients and you know guiding to almost two billion dollars in revenue for next year we there's a lot of scale and network benefits that we get from the size of the business that we have
4: so when i look at this and it says hundred twenty one percent in in the in the third cohort of, of yeah. fiscal 19 you what you're telling me is so in that cohort, that, that third cohort, they're buying on a year over year basis. They're, they're taking 21% more from the box that they did the year prior. They're, they're, that's they're correct. buying 21% more. Yes, that's correct.
2: That, that is Got so, it. Yeah, exactly that. Got it.
3: As you perfect your algorithms, And as we travel into a world where there's an increasing amount of automation, I I think back to a meeting we had with some of the leadership at Comcast as they were talking about really preparing everyone in their customer services area as an example for automation and the transition they would have to make in their career and the reality that chatbots would emerge and that they wanted to be as transparent as possible with their customer service agents. Do you think that the algorithms could get so good that there is a changing role for the stylists at Stitch Fix over the long term? Will will the algorithms be able to simply select the right and match the right patterns and selections for each for each individual or do you not anticipate that happening?
1: Yeah,
2: I'll, I'll answer the question in a couple ways. One, uh, you know, we've always been balanced between human and data science and there will always be a place for kind of humans in, you know, in the stylist in our model. Uh, customers and clients won't tell an algorithm that their butt felt too big in the pair of jeans that they got or their thighs got or, you know, they weren't comfortable with how their thighs showed or things like bra size or whether, like I just shared, whether I'm athletic or husky. That is just something that we do not believe, uh, you know, an algorithm will be told. It requires you to have trust with the Um, client that you built that trust that when they share those intimate details that you're going to deliver them great fitting clothes uh, from them, you know, from their sharing those vulnerabilities, frankly. So I always see a place for humans and and data science uh, working together. The second thing I'd say is that the stylist job has changed dramatically over the seven and a half years that I've been here. You know, we originally started in women's tops and now we do shoes and we do plus and we do maternity and we do men's and we do kids in the UK. And so the stylist community, and frankly everyone that works at this company, you know, really understands that when you're growing as much as we've grown and have as much opportunity as we have on this platform you have to be pretty comfortable with change. My job, you know, in seven and a half years probably feels like it changes every quarter. And, and so you have to feel comfortable generally with change if you wanna work in a disruptive high growth area like, we're, like what we're doing. And so uh, I think I would close by saying uh, we want uh, humans, in this case, stylists, to do the things that humans do best. Uh, You know, there are so many rope calculations that happen with kind of matching that doesn't make sense for a stylist to do. Uh, There are a number of things in the warehouse that doesn't make sense for, you know, uh, to have. We used to have a box builder, and all that person did all day was build boxes. That's not the most exciting job for anybody. And so if you can create, have automation or technology that solves the more mundane parts of a, a person's job, then they can be more excited about the more creative parts of their job. And I think that builds longer term, enduring relationships with our employee base.
4: Yeah. You know, Mike, if you that makes absolute sense. And if you could talk about just some of the brand extensions that you could do. So for example, you just recently acquired Finery. If you could give us like the sense of, a, why did you do the Finery acquisition? And B, how are you going to think about this? There are, are there other ways uh, that the Stitch Fix brand can grow and and be in other places.
2: Yeah, I think without talking specifically about the Finery acquisition, because that you know what that did for us was create. Um, it's a competency within the company of how to do mergers and acquisition. You know, in the early days, we would get a decent amount of inbound from companies that were interested in being part of StitchFix that we just didn't have the time nor the muscle of evaluating that. And, and that more, most recent acquisition helps, helped us build uh, that m- muscle. As far as future things, I mean, we have so many ideas. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of what we've done, especially as a public company, is you know, say what we're going to do and do it and not get distracted. So, again, we've had eight quarters as a public company delivering exactly what we said we were going to do from a revenue guidance perspective and a profit guidance perspective. And we're building trust with Wall Street and the analyst community and and long-term investors over time. And my opinion is that the only way to keep that trust is to stay very focused on delivering what you know is in front of you and not sort of get ahead of your skis. But I will say, you know, whether it's bicycles or restaurants or dating or beauty or home goods, there's lots of different ways that personalization uh, can be applied and have it be a better shopping experience. And we talk about all of those, but for now we're very focused on kind of the things that are in front of us and
1: we'll evaluate those other things, uh, you know, when it makes sense for us. Mike, we have uh, just a few minutes left, so we just want to respect your time. And so just a few questions left. The first, I wanted to ask, um, you sit on the board of Ulta, which is another uh, recommendation of The Motley Fool has done uh, very well for us. And it's also run uh, by, by a fantastic leader in Mary Dillon. Um, yep. If you could just give some thoughts about um, wh- what you have learned from that experience and then perhaps what you have also – what has Stitch Fix brought to Ulta?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's early on in my days uh, being involved with Ulta, but I feel really fortunate to be involved with Mary and her team and the rest of the board. Uh, it's an amazing company. Uh, they really understand their clients and 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 their guests and, you know, uh, how to deliver amazing experiences in stores, both with product and services. And so I think what I learned from Ulta in their, my early weeks being on the board is, successful scaling of a great idea like they've gone from you know sort of a billion dollars to a lot more other than that and from a market cap perspective have, have gained a lot of market cap over the last six or seven years and so how do you scale successfully is what i have learned already in my short time being associated with alta Uh, And also just the quality of the leadership team there with, you know, sort of uh, with Mary, the the leadership team Mary has built, gives us a good sort of framework to ensure that we're always having, you know, a very high-impact leadership team. I think what I can bring to them over time is this idea of how much data science and engineering, specifically around personalization can impact their experience as well. Uh, They, uh, you know, have, you know, lots of loyal members that go into Ulta stores all the time. You know, there's, I think, a ton of opportunity that Ulta has, and frankly, any retailer uh, has, to have a much better understanding of their client experience and use data science and engineering, uh, I think, more robustly in the model. So, but it's too early to say. I mean, I'm hoping that I can add value. I expect to add value on that board. But Ulta has done a tremendous job, of having just a fabulous business uh, in beauty. That's awesome. Thank
3: you. It's time for our final question. I think it would be a good idea in our minds to all cue the Rocky movie music that we know. Nice. (laughs) And we've got that in our minds now. Yep. And I wanted to give a shout out to Paul Yee because I think uh, Sitchfix is extremely well managed financially. is an outside passive investor looking at the company. And I look on the balance sheet and we have, you know, $300 plus in cash sitting there. We got the Rocky music in our minds, and Amazon has forty billion in cash on their balance sheet. So, Mike, tell us why we're gonna why we're gonna win in any showdowns with Amazon.
2: Yeah, I'd go back to how much product uh, and how much apparel is done in brick and mortar. Uh, stores today and know that there's a lot of opportunity. We have good tailwinds for our business of continuing to take share from our, uh, you know, from other brick-and-mortar retailers. Specifically to Amazon, personalization is all we do. Uh, Katrina built this company with this idea of using a style profile and getting checkout data and, and having data science be part of how we, you know, disrupt apparel retail and this is all we're doing. And so I think the seven and a half years I've been here, the eight year, eight and a half years the company's been around, it's the scale of the business, it's the understanding of what data matters, it's the fact that we're solely focused on kind of this problem set versus lots of other businesses that other companies are in that give us confidence that we'll be able to fend off. Anybody, but also more importantly, deliver great client experiences over a long period of time. So we're excited about how much more we can do at Citrix and focused on that.
3: Thank you for that answer and all your answers and for this conversation. I'll just emphasize two words that you um, uh, focused on in just the last sentence of that answer and the two words long period or long period of time, those four words. That's what the Motley Fool's all about. You may or may not know this, but when we recommend a stock and we allow our members to invest before we do, and then when we invest, um, in the services in which Stitch Fix is recommended, we have a mandated five-year holding period, which is completely anathema. You, 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 very hard to find that on Wall Street. We're, we're extremely focused on the long-term performance of the businesses that we're invested in. We're very happy to be a part of the overall uh, Stitch Fix stakeholder base, and thanks so much for taking the time, and and we look forward to continuing to follow and invest in your company going forward.
2: Yeah, well, thank you for the support and kind of the fair coverage of what you guys talk about and challenging too, which is what we want. We want sort of the smartest and best people around the table kind of working with us because this idea has so many legs and and, and there's a lot more we can do. And it's great to have smart people that are very engaged in, in our business that have a long-term lens like you guys do. So thanks for that support.
3: Awesome, Mike. Thank you very much. And Andy and Tim and everyone here at The Fool, thank you and and uh, and carry on. Thanks, Mike.
2: All right, thank you.
0: Thanks, Mike. We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Stitch Fix COO Mike Smith. As you heard Andy mention off the top of the interview, Stitch Fix is a Motley Fool premium recommendation in a number of our premium services. If you're looking for more stock ideas and recommendations like Stitch Fix, our stock advisor service might be right for you. You'll get stock recommendations from David and Tom Gardner each month, Best Buys now and a whole lot more just go to if.fool.com to check it out and receive a special 50% discount just for Industry focused listeners. That's if.fool.com. If you liked this episode and would like to hear more like it in the future, let us know by shooting us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For the whole Motley Fool team, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on.